Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm the pastor, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, as he said, we began last week a series on revival that we're taglining ordinary grace in extraordinary measure. We said that revival wasn't something that you could create, and so we drew a sharp distinction from what some of us uh, may or may not have experienced or heard about or grown up in, uh, where uh, where you think of a tent revival or my church had a, you know, we're, we're having a revival from June 20th to uh, June 23rd. That's not what we mean. What we mean is the ordinary work of God just done in extraordinary measure. And so we started and said we're going to ask God to revive our hearts because it starts inside, not outside. And so today we're going to keep going. All right, let's get started. Uh, all of humanity, uh, us included, every one of us in this room, we are a complex set of competing desires, right? For example, uh, I want to save for retirement. I want to travel. For my kids, um, I want to obey. I want candy, um, which may not be that complicated for them. It's just I want candy. Um, end of report right there. And so uh, this one for me, this may not be you, but I want to uh, this is personal. I don't know. Uh, I want to be healthy, uh, and I want fajitas every day, lupe tortilla, lunch and dinner, nonstop. That's what I want. You want to know my biggest dad fail? Not part of the sermon, real quick. My, my biggest dad fail, uh, my oldest daughter, my seven-year-old daughter, she doesn't really love Mexican food. Um, it's not her fault. She was born in Dallas, and so, um, <laughs> but I want fajitas. I don't want them every day. But if I were to give in to this temptation, this desire, this competing desire for fajitas daily, what's going to happen? I mean, besides chest pain, what's going to happen? Uh, guilt. Like, I'm going to live with this constant state of guilt. Like, every time I'm going to enjoy those fajitas, and then I'm going to feel guilty day in and day out. David, the author of the psalm that we're looking at today, um, he knows the feeling of guilt, but for him, the competing choice is far more serious than fajitas. And so out of this guilt that he felt, Psalm 51 arises. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at David interacting with his own feelings of, of guilt. And as he does, and as we do, something's going to emerge. And what emerges is something that without which revival of heart will never happen. So let's go. Psalm 51, to understand it, we have to know the, uh, the context. We don't have to guess at the context. We didn't read it, but it's the top line on there. It says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so here's the story. Uh, the story goes like this. David was the king of Israel, and he's up on the roof, and he's looking out, and he sees uh, Bathsheba, and he thinks uh, Bathsheba is attractive. Now Bathsheba is the wife of a man named Uriah. Uriah was off at battle. So David summons Bathsheba over, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, needs a solution. This is a dilemma. It's a problem. I need a way out. And his solution is I'm going to have David sent or Uriah sent to the front lines of battle so that he'll be killed. And then one day, this prophet, a man named Nathan, shows up. And he says, hey, hey, David, I've got to tell you what happened. I've got to tell you this, man. Two men, one rich, one poor. The poor man's got almost nothing. The traveler comes to town. The rich man won't, won't use any of his animals to feed him. He says, hey, go grab a lamb from the poor man. What should we do with him? 
And Nathan says, this man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. And in a flash, David is exposed. What one commentator said was the most grievous and heinous sin done by any believer in the Bible is now in the light. And David, living in the aftermath of what he has done and what he's done being exposed, grabs a pen, sits under a tree, unrolls a scroll, and writes Psalm 51. In verse 1, he begins like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your (coughs) abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so David, in light of what he's done and living in the aftermath of all that he has done, sits down and the first thing he does is to cry out for forgiveness, to plead and beg for the mercy of God, for the forgiveness of God. And let me, let me tell you what I love about verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 51 in light of the background that led David to write this psalm. Here's what I love about it. I, I'm guessing that in this room, and I don't know everyone in this room, uh, but I'm guessing we've got some, some fairly sorted pasts in this room. We, we've got some men and women in this room who have got a few things in your past, like I do, that you're ashamed of, that you're embarrassed of, that if we were to put them on the screen right now behind us, you would flash red in the face, start sweating, sprint out, and never come back. And here's what I'm guessing. <coughs> I, I'm guessing this. Um, you, your past is probably not as bad as David's. You, you've probably uh, never slept with someone else's spouse and then had their spouse killed. If you have, we should talk. I, I'm guessing that hasn't happened. And if David, if David, this man who does what was said to be the most heinous sin of any believer in the Bible, can come to God and cry out for forgiveness, you can too. You can too. Which takes us to where he goes in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And here's what's Here's what's really fascinating about this. Did you catch in verse 4 that David, who slept with somebody's wife, had the husband killed, says, even with all the shrapnel I created and all the horizontal brokenness and the wake of sin that I left behind me, my sin was against you and you alone, God, that the foundation of his sin was against the Lord, that this is, I believe, giving us a glimpse into the starting place of revival. So David's starting place, where he starts looking at his sin in the past, is a vertical confession of it. This vertical confession between him and God that my sin was first an offense to you. And I think he's giving us a clue, giving us a clue that that revival of heart begins with confession of sin. And with this clue comes a couple of barriers. 
a couple of barriers to seeing our hearts revived. Barrier number one is that we never own our own brokenness. Like you, you want to you wanna know one of the barriers that's preventing the spirit from just rejuvenating your heart and reviving your heart? Is that we don't own our own sin. And so what, it, what happens is everything going on in my life is someone else's fault. My marriage struggling, their fault. My roommate and I, we just never get along, their fault. All of my bosses always seem to have problems with me. It's because I keep getting a run of bad bosses. That's why. Never my fault. I don't own my own sin. Or two, two, that we're living, living hidden in plain sight. I mean, sin has us gripped by the ankles. It's wrapped around, working its way up the leg, yanking us down, and we're standing here pretending like nothing is wrong. We're living hidden in plain sight. Everyone knows us a little. No one actually knows us. Because if they knew me, they would see what's going on. They'd see what it is around my ankles. But I've got to make sure that I keep you close, but far enough away that you can't see that. And that is nothing but a horizontal expression of vertical hiding. As if the Lord doesn't see and doesn't know. First place that... David starts as with a confession of the actual brokenness in his own life. But now in verse 7, he says this. Purge me. Purge me with hyssop. There's something my son has never said. Hey, Dad, I need my hyssop. Cleanse. I'm sorry I lied, Dad. Go get my hyssop. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, uh, for us, we, we read, purge me with hyssop, and it, it doesn't register. We don't have a clue what's, uh, what's happening. But to the ancient reader, 2,500 years ago, grabbing Psalm 51 for the first time, reading, purge me with hyssop, would have known what was going on. That Leviticus 14, hyssop is used in the cleansing of a uh, leper. Someone with leprosy has a skin condition where you'd have been seen as unclean. That you can't come into the presence of God. You are basically the walking dead living under divine judgment. And David here, David, don't miss what David does. He essentially says, you want to know the root issue? You want to know the real problem? You want to know what, what led to me looking at Bathsheba and calling her over to my home? You, you want to know what led to this? It's that basically I'm a spiritual leper. I've got spiritual leprosy. That the root issue isn't lust. Right? The root issue isn't um, hormones raging inside of me. The root issue is a spiritual issue between me and God that I need God to purge me of. I need God to enter into my life and purge me of this deeper root issue. It doesn't stay on the surface. He gets underneath it. And says, essentially, the real problem is I've got leprosy of the soul, and I need God to come in and purge me and cleanse me. He gets underneath it. And now, now, given this, let's put ourselves in David's shoes. In light of him confessing all that he has done, owning up to what he has done before God, now put ourselves in his shoes as we read the next six verses. Verse 8, let me hear. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me, let me, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I think that if we can put ourselves in David's shoes, it's as if we could feel the tears coming off as he's crying out, Lord, let me, let me hear, let me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquity. Yes, Lord, even that one, even the thing that I can't believe that I did, blot that one out. Lord, I feel like I've done the unforgivable, blot it out. And I I know this feeling that he must have been feeling right now is one that's not far from many of us. I'm not certain, confident uh, that there are some of us in this room right now who are very aware of the I have done the unforgivable Lord. I've done it. Like I have done the unforgivable. I have crossed that line where there is no coming back. Be it abortion, be it serial hookup, be it addiction, be it my depression has just gone too far. I have crossed the line. There's no hope for me anymore. I, I'm guessing some of us might have been able to feel what he's felt. And if it's not that, if it's not that, maybe it's just more like seasons in my life where you just feel like you drift. Like, you know, when you get in the ocean, you're uh, preferably not Galveston because the, the brown water, but you're in an ocean, uh, you get in, and the, it, it just, the current just pulls you off, and all of a sudden you wake up, and you, or not wake up, but you, God, don't fall asleep in the ocean, all right? Um, but you look up, and you're 60 yards over, and you don't even know that you just drifted right over there. I think some, some of us might be in that ocean, we're looking up right now and going, like, I've just drifted. I started out in the middle, I've just drifted. And I need, because of my drifting, to restore the joy of my salvation. I need joy and gladness in my life again from the Lord. I need it. And what David does here, when he uses the word right, create a clean heart in me, renew a right spirit within me, that word is also the word steadfast. It's not the same word from verse 1 where he says, according to your steadfast love, but a lot of overlap. And so what David is pleading for is bring my heart back in line with yours. Take my heart that has drifted over here or has crossed a line over here and bring my heart back to where yours is. Steadfast, steadfast. Bring them together. It's why he's begging, God, don't leave me. Don't take your spirit from me. Don't leave me. Restore the joy of my salvation, which I think, again, highlights another barrier to experiencing God reviving our own hearts. And it's that we don't, we don't walk in the assurance of our salvation. We don't walk in the assurance that God loves me. Like we might believe that God generally loves us and loves people, but me, where I am and all of my mess and all of my brokenness and all of my striving, me. He loves me. And I think we could also learn from David here. And this is not going to be popular, but I'm going to say it. One of the reasons, if you wrestle with this, if you're going, man, I, I, I doubt my own salvation, there's a good chance like David it's because obedience is not as much a part of your life as it should be. 
Like, you want to know why David is crying this out right now? Because at some point he drifted farther and farther from the commands of God to the degree that he called out a woman, sent her over, slept with her, and killed her husband. He walked farther and farther and farther away from the commands of God. And listen, if, if obedience, if holiness isn't a priority in your life, you should have no expectation that the assurance of God would be there for you. You know what, another one? Another one is when we shift holiness and we turn holiness not into this internal condition, but morality. I do X, I do Y, and I do Z. And what happens is if I think do X, Y, and Z is what gives me the approval of God, I'll never be able to do enough X, Y, and Z to earn it, and so I'm never going to walk in the confidence that I have it. (coughs) So David starts out crying for forgiveness, pleas for a clean heart, and now he gets to what he needs. Verse 14, deliver me. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Every commentator I read said this blood guiltiness is a reference back to Uriah. Back to him taking an innocent man, shipping him to the front lines and having him killed. And he is crying out, deliver me from this. Deliver me from the guilt of what I have done. But here's the thing. Um, What we also know from David in the context of the psalm is that he is fully aware that there's no religious ritual that's going to earn him the the deliverance that he's after. And so how would it happen? How, How would David be delivered from the guiltiness and the blood guiltiness and what he has done? Well, it would happen a few centuries later. Hebrews 9 For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How how would he get what he wants? How would he get the deliverance and the conscience that he wants? It's not going to come through an animal. It would come through the Father sending the Son. It would come through this. You know what would happen? It would come through the Father doing what David did, sending an innocent man to the front lines to die. Sending an innocent man to shed innocent blood for guilty and the guilty blood that was on David's hands. That's how. And this changes everything. It changes everything. For you, for me, for David. Which is why we get a glimpse at the end of this psalm of a revived heart. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. Now on the surface, this is um, a touch confusing, right? Because throughout the Old Testament, God commanded sacrifices and burnt offerings, and now David is saying, hey, you, you won't be pleased with it. You're not going to be pleased with it. And so I want to let um, 
Dave Allen, not David Ross, um, Alan Ross, uh, this brilliant Old Testament scholar, tell us what it is that David is talking about here because on the surface it's confusing, but Alan Ross says this, when you put it in the context of the entirety of the psalm, this is what happens. This is what's happening. The point is painfully clear. If people have unconfessed sin in their lives, God has no delight in their worship. God is not after external moral religious conformity. He's after purity of heart. He's after transforming the hearts of men and women. If I could say it this way, we said it this way a thousand times, that what he's not after is your Sunday morning. He's not after you punching in, punching out from 11 to 12.15 on a Sunday morning. He's not after you punching in, punching out from 7 to 9 on a Tuesday night. He's after the redemption and transformation of your heart that your heart would be a heart that delights in <coughs> him. And so what is then? What is a revived heart? What is it he's after? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God. The sacrifices that he was after all along from beginning to end in the Bible. The sacrifices that God has been after are a broken spirit and a contrite Heart, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You want to know what a revived heart looks like? It looks like a broken and contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And Alan Ross again says, says this, and it is, if there's anything, I mean, that just has to sink into us to understand the God, here it is. This is the only damaged offering an Israelite was allowed to bring. Think about this. The only damaged offering an Israelite was allowed to bring. Every animal had to be perfect, but, but the heart of the sinner had to be broken, broken of self-will and arrogance. True contrition, that is a spirit broken by guilt and remorse, is, is what God looks for. You know the starting place, the starting place for holiness, the starting place for a revived heart? It's not do more. It's not I need three more Bible studies, seven more churches. That's not it. It's humility of heart. It's broken and contrite heart, which leads to verse 18, do good to your daughter, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. That's a figure of speech, not physical walls, but um, the spiritual, moral walls, the kind that lead to verse 19. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And can I, can I quote Alan Ross one more time? Say yes, we've already got the slide made, so we're going to do it anyway. This is what David Ross says, that, that, that Alan Ross says that David is praying for, asking here, 18 and 19, spiritual renewal that would enable the people to worship. You know, what, you know what renewal is a synonym for? Revival. Revival. So that David, at the end of this, what he's praying for is that there would be this revival of heart in the people to the degree that they could, they could worship. There, there wouldn't be unconfessed sin that throws up this roadblock that creates a worship that God's not taking delight in. 
but that they would be the people who experience revival, the kind of reviving of heart that leads to worship. And if we take 18 and 19 in context of the entire psalm, this is what we see David saying. There is no revival of heart without pursuing holiness. No revival of heart without desiring a clean heart. None. None. Which takes us back to where David began. That confession of sin is the soil that holiness grows out of. Listen, confession of sin, it's not the only thing in pursuit of holiness, but it's what's going on in Psalm 51. Confession of sin is the soil that holiness grows out of, and unconfessed sin is the soil that hypocrisy grows out of. And why? Why, do we, why can we drive ourselves into the light? Because Jesus on the cross was driven into the dark. That's why. He experienced darkness so that you can live in the light. So you don't have to live in what he experienced. We said we're a complex set of competing desires, competing choices. Choices up to you. Will I pursue a life of open, honest confession, living in the light because I know Jesus died in the dark for me, leading to holiness, or will I, will I continue to hide, continue to live in secret, living in the dark, walking my way toward hypocrisy? The choice is up to you, but without actively pursuing internal holiness, there will be no internal revival. And so what's my, what's my step, Brandon? What's my next step? What do I do from here? Let me give you this. Find some people that you love that love you. Ideally, they're in your parish. If you're not part of one of our neighborhood parishes, let me encourage you to step into one. You're going to find people who love you, I promise. And what if, what if we just let go of the last 10%? You know the 10% that you never say to somebody, like you're angry at them and you're going to, like I'm going to tell them off and you tell them like 90% off but then you don't go all the way? Or you're confessing and you, like you're sharing, hey, this is what I'm wrestling with, this is what I'm struggling with, this is what I did last week and so we say things like, man, lust has just been really after me lately. And what we mean is I've looked at pornography six times a day for the last week. Or we... We say, man, I'm just really wrestling with body image. When, when what we mean is that we've started eating less and less. Like, what if, what if we didn't withhold that last 10%, we let that last 10% out, and we actually became fully known? Because if, if we're following David rightly here, we can see that that's going to be the soil that God uses to revive our heart. What if that was us? What if that was you? And then we pray and we plead, oh God, breathe life into our confession and it might revive our heart. Let's pray. Father, I know that it takes um, an incredible amount of courage to be willing to be the kind of man or woman that says, I'm going to let the last 10% out. I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to be honest about who I am, where I am. And so I'm asking that there would be that gospel courage in us, that you might grant it to us and give it to us. We need it.
It's not going to happen without it. And may you, Lord, may you breathe. May you breathe life into our confession and revive our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.